from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Good evening, friends. My name is Joseph Backholm, and I am sitting in for Tony Perkins today. Glad that you are with us on this Monday before Christmas. The website, I want to remind you, there is TonyPerkins.com, where you can find this and every show. In addition, if you would like to have your support for FRC and Washington Watch doubled, any contribution made at TonyPerkins.com between now and December 31st will be doubled. We thank you for your support that makes this and every program possible. On the show today, the Pentagon this afternoon released new rules aimed at reducing extremism within the military. Will those rules be helpful? Or is it just another way to make life more difficult for service members who aren't sufficiently woke? We'll talk about that. In addition, as you heard in the headlines, a court has reinstated the vaccine mandate on employers with more than 100 employees. The Supreme Court has been asked to intervene and stop the mandate that forces private employers to impose a vaccine mandate on its employees. Will the Supreme Court step in? We'll talk about it with one of the lawyers involved in those cases. At the end of the program, will we always be told to wear masks on airplanes? Dr. Fauci suggests the answer may be yes. In addition, how worried should we be about the Omicron variant? We'll talk about that with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya at the end of the program. But first, the top story of the day is the torpedo that Senator Joe Manchin sent into the bow of President Joe Biden's top legislative priority, Build Back Better. On Fox News Sunday, he said that he cannot support the Democrats' massive social spending bill after months of negotiation. If I can't go home and explain it to the people of West Virginia, I can't vote for it. And I cannot vote to continue with this piece of legislation. I just can't. I've tried everything humanly possible. I can't get there. You're done. This is, this is a no. This is a no. Not surprisingly, that announcement outraged his Democrat colleagues and the liberal media who called him the Grinch and the lone senator who is, quote, obstructing the people's agenda and, quote, killing the future of American democracy. Now, Senator Manchin also said that White House staff have retaliated against him by putting out some things that are absolutely inexcusable. Things are not going well in the White House. But Senator Manchin is standing firm. What does this mean moving forward here now to talk about it and more? is U.S. Representative Warren Davidson, a member of the House Financial Services Committee. He represents the 8th Congressional District in Ohio. Congressman Davidson, welcome back to the program. Joseph, always an honor to be on, and uh, congratulations on a slot here. Great to join you. It's great to see you. Thanks for joining us. What was your reaction uh, to Senator Manchin's statement that he is a no on Build Back Better? Uh, celebratory. And frankly, it's a it's a near miss for America. And I'm thankful that Joe Manchin has stuck to his guns. And look, he's 
he's been honest all along. What's been dishonest is the Democrats' way to score this bill. Uh, it really is closer to a $5 trillion bill than a $1.7 trillion bill. Uh, and they used gimmicks. And Joe, Joe Manchin called out the gimmicks the same way Republicans have been calling them out. I hope that makes uh, some people say, you know, maybe they were telling us the truth when they said the score is close to $5 trillion. Joe Manchin said it himself. Uh, Joe Manchin's been solid on budget and spending. Now, he might be for lots of things Republicans aren't, but he can see through the, the dishonesty in this bill. And I applaud him for sticking to it. Were you surprised that uh, Senator Manchin came out and gave a definitive no? Uh, yeah, somewhat. And, uh, but it relieved, you know, I mean, really, when you look at it, if he was truly opposed, if he truly meant, I mean, he had a great uh, op-ed that was widely circulated in the Wall Street Journal talking about the importance of balancing our budgets, uh, about the dishonesty of the scoring, and about the impact on inflation. I mean, this has been a debt bomb uh, looming over our country. I look at it as he disarmed something dangerous rather than taking an offensive action. I mean, it was uh, it was great. The scary thing is the way that this is being phrased as one person stops democracy. I mean, the reality is there's 50 other senators opposed to it. I just pray that all of the Republicans hold in their opposition to it. And you make a good point there. There is what I would describe as real anger from the Democratic Party broadly about Senator Manchin's uh, position on Build Back Better. Do you think there's a sense among party leadership in Washington, D.C., that they are entitled to the votes of people within their party? Therefore, they don't necessarily have to persuade them. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, look, when I ran for Congress, uh, the Republicans were in the majority. And frankly, the, the, the role of the whip is, is, is essentially to get you to vote the way uh, that they tell you to. You know, uh, no one in America, House or Senate, runs for office and says, you know, when I get to Washington, I'm just going to follow orders so we can get things done. Uh, thankfully, Joe Manchin isn't there to follow orders uh, on, on this issue, at least. I mean, Donald Trump won West Virginia by like 39 points. When he say, listen to the people, I think he is listening to the people of West Virginia. I think a lot of America would agree with you that uh, the bigger threat to democracy would be the idea that our elected representatives would go to Washington, D.C. and simply follow orders rather than thinking for themselves. And in Senator Manchin's case, I think legitimately representing the will of the state that has elected him. Now, Senator um, Schumer, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, said today that he still intended to have a vote on Build Back Better. He thinks there needs to be an up and down. Do you have a sense that the Democrats in the Senate believe that the American public is clamoring for this in such a way that a no vote on Build Back Better would ultimately uh, lead to the public punishing them at the polls? Yeah, I don't think it's going to be a, a smart move, but I'll leave it to Senator Schumer to run his party. Uh, they've been running it into the ground. I mean, you've had uh, almost a full year of this administration with, uh, you know, Democrat control of the House and Senate. And the country would have been better off if they simply didn't do anything. Their policies have been catastrophic. Um, and look, I, I applaud any effort to get more votes. We ought to break the bill into little chunks, uh, you know, one page bills, one topic at a time, have them debated in committee subject to amendment and let there be votes. Uh, that would be a more honest representative legislature. Uh, but that's not been the path. Frankly, even Ways and Means in the House didn't uh, have the hearing on all the tax hikes in this. It was driven by uh, House and Senate leadership. It wasn't even delivered, uh, deliberated in committee. 
it may be now that the White House no, has no other option but to do this piece by piece. But I think there is concern within the Democratic caucus that the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party uh, would not find that acceptable. You mentioned that this comes at the tail end of a difficult year for President Biden. Afghanistan did not go well. Inflation is not going well. The border is not going well. Depending on who you listen to, the coronavirus situation is as bad as it has ever been. Where does President Biden go from here? Uh, well, uh, you know, it, he's doubling down on all the same policies. It's a kind of a human nature. I mean, when I was in uh, in the Army, there were these obstacle courses, and you would put junior leaders through the courses and have them manage a task. And often, once they committed to something, even though it was obvious, for example, that the ladder wasn't going to reach across the pool of water, they would double down and stretch it, even knowing it wasn't going to do it. And that seems to be you know, we know that the vaccines are not stopping the spread, but um, people are doubling down on it. We know that massive lockdowns aren't working. New York, if it was, New York would already have no spread and Florida would be running rampant. But uh, people double down on all the same policies that didn't work in the first place. Uh, hopefully we can fight human nature and follow the logic and the science uh, on all the problems. Uh, and, and look at the math on spending. I mean, you can't just use negative numbers. Eventually you have to pay for some of this. And I just don't think people are given enough um, thought to how much uh, of this generation's consumption is supposed to be paid for by the next generation. I applaud the Republicans for holding strong on this uh, Build Back Better initiative. And I'm thankful that Joe Manchin and hopefully Kristen Sinema and others will join the effort to stop um, spending more than we can than we can afford. We're speaking with Congressman Warren Davidson. And Congressman, one thing that Washington, D.C. seems to agree on is that we have a lot of challenges. Do you think there are any solutions right now that can bring the parties together? You know, I think truly one of the most bipartisan things in Congress is taking care of our veterans. You look back just a few years ago, I mean, you know, maybe 2014, I remember uh, the VA was in um, distress. Veterans uh, have still continued to commit suicide at alarming rates. Uh, the lockdowns have been bad for mental health for all populations. And I see a, a consensus emerging in terms of taking care of our veterans. I hope we'll give the same thought to all of our policies on mental health for the public. Uh, and, you know, it used to be that the United States uh, government was pretty united behind Israel. Uh, that no longer seems to be the case, but it sure would be nice, uh, especially in this Christmas season. You mentioned our veterans. You and a group of your colleagues filed an amicus brief backing 35 Navy service members who are suing the Pentagon to prevent them from enforcing the uh, vaccine mandate and claiming religious exemptions, saying that the mandate violates their religious freedom. What motivated you to do that? Well, I don't support any of uh, President Biden's five mandates. He's got one for OSHA, one for CMS, the medical payment system. Uh, one for federal employees, one for the military, and one for Def Department of Defense contractors. I oppose all, all of them because the risk of COVID-19, particularly to military-age men and women, young, fit, healthy people, is very low. Uh, there are whistleblowers that are pointing out that the risk of the, the side effects is greater than the risk of the virus for that particular population. But the, the problem, one of the biggest problems with this, these mandates that Joe Biden's pushing, uh, there, there aren't religious exemptions and there aren't, um, you know, sound science treatment for natural immunity. So uh, this uh, is a lawsuit focused on the religious freedom aspects, and I, I hope it prevails. I, I feel pretty confident it will. And uh, that was the point of the amicus brief that I joined.
There are some who say that this really isn't a religious issue, that these are really just personal objections being masked as religious objections. What's your response to that? I think the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, for example, is pretty clear that they are uh, conscious objections. You can't allow the state to tell you what you can inject into your body or or whatever, the state to compel you to have uh, a medical procedure. And look, the military used to admit a lot of rights. I, I don't I don't believe that the military should be barred uh, from, um, you know, mandating vaccines. Uh, I was in uh, I was an army ranger. I took all kinds of vaccines against all sorts of things. Um, but this particular vaccine is not well thought out. And normally there are exemptions for religious uh, cause and for uh, natural immunity. Now, very quickly, you've got about a minute left. Tens of thousands of service members have not yet uh, ha- met the requirements of the vaccine mandate. What is happening to them? Well, unfortunately, they're incrementally being discharged. Uh, and, uh, you know, the administration is harming our national security by doing that. Uh, Congress tried to stop it in the Defense uh, Authorization Act. Unfortunately, we could only make sure that they can't be dishonorably discharged. Uh, they shouldn't be discharged at all. Um, but unless unless uh, the Biden administration relents, uh, the commander in chief does have a lot of discretion over the active duty military. Uh, it really is poorly thought out. And then the government's only funded until February. So we're calling on all of our Republican colleagues and as many Democrats as will boldly cross the line to say, yes, we want to fund the government. We do not want to fund a government that imposes these mandates on our population, particularly our military men and women. There are a lot of challenges in, ahead of us between now and February. And uh, Senator Davidson, we appreciate your time. And Ohio is beautiful this evening. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. And stay with us when we get back more from the military. Service members can now be punished for liking or retweeting certain content on social media. What's driving that decision? We'll talk about it with General, General Boykin when we come back. Stay with us. Are you struggling to spend consistent time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading with an intentional focus of diving deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues. By studying the Bible, we can see the grandeur of God unfold throughout the past. The Stand on the Word reading plan takes you through daily scripture in an engaging manner to help you stay grounded in God's truth. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you every Sunday with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org Bible. With the current division and confusion of our culture, it is so important for Christians to root ourselves in the truth of God's word so that we are prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. For this purpose, Family Research Council launched the Center for Biblical Worldview. The Center applies the Bible and the historical teachings of the church to current issues. This helps Christians understand and live by a biblical worldview, know why scripture must be authoritative, and equips believers to advance and defend the faith in workplaces, schools, communities, and the public square. The experts at the center address and provide resources on issues like religious liberty, abortion, voting, 
marriage, and sexuality. To access free resources like the Biblical Worldview series, go to frc.org worldview. To get highlights of the latest work of the Worldview Fellows, including blogs, interviews, and publications, sign up at frc.org subscriptions. At Family Research Council, it is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, we've decided to be proactive to make sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. That is why we've created a tech subscription platform. If we get canceled, you can stay informed and still find updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts, and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and you will get special alerts on the biggest stories of the day. You can stay informed with just a simple text. We want you to be able to stay connected with like-minded community and to always have access to our content. Stay connected and informed. Just text STAND to 67742. Welcome back, friends, to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Mackle. I'm sitting in for Tony today. So glad that you are spending some time with us this evening. Earlier today, the Department of Defense revealed its latest updates to an anti-extremism policy under which service members can now be punished for liking or retweeting content on social media that has, quote, the intent to promote or otherwise endorse extremist activities, end quote. Is this a prudent step to avoid extremism or an intrusion into the rights of service members? Joining me now to talk about it and more is FRC's Executive Vice President, Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin, who is one of the original members of the U.S. Army's Delta Force. He also spent the last four years of his 36-year military career serving as the Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. General, good to see you. It's good to be with you. Well, first, do you have any sense of what they mean by extremist activities? Is that term defined? Well, theoretically, it's defined in this uh, in this document that was just put out, which is essentially a directive to all the military forces. Uh, but no, I think it's ill-defined. I think that that's what uh, I think they did that purposely. I think they did that so that. Uh, they can uh, come up with uh, new categories uh, as needed, as wanted. Listen, Joseph, during the Obama administration, they had uh, the Defense Equal Opportunity Management Institute teaching tolerance and all these woke things. Then keep in mind, this goes back to Obama. And we got a, a um, photograph that was sent to us uh, by someone that was in one of these classes. And uh, it listed American Family Association as an extremist group. It, it listed AFA as a group that you had better stay away from them because you're jeopardizing your career if you don't. Now, I just ask you, as you look at this thing, because it's got all of the SOGI stuff in it, if, if, if we as the Family Research Council continue, as we will, to stand on biblical marriage as the standard for one man and one woman, then do you think it's possible that we're going to wind up being categorized as an extremist group? Uh, I can make that case because we've seen it before with the Obama administration. 
I think that's a really good point. And, and to your point, part of the definition of extremist activities, and keep in mind, this is minutes old. It's within the last hour that this has really been made public. It says that part of, part of the definition is, quote, advocating widespread unlawful discrimination based on race, color, national origin, religion, sex, including pregnancy, gender identity, or sexual orientation. So arguably, on its face, looking at that definition, if you are advocating for for example, traditional biblical marriage, under their definition, that would be widespread unlawful discrimination as they understand it. Now, the nature of the problem here, because on some level we oppose extremism, and we would all agree that there are some things that we would like not to see our service members talking about on social media or events that they would be attending. But uh, senior defense officials admitted that there were fewer than 100 military members known to have been participating in extremist activity in the last year. Keep in mind, in 2020, there were over 481,000 active service members. Do you think that the size of the problem that they have identified warrants the response that's being provided? No, not at all. And keep in mind, what you just gave was the army number. There are, there are other services there. We've got a couple million people in uniform at, at, at least. And, uh, listen, if I, this is bizarre because I, I find myself asking, is this administration deliberately trying to destroy our military? Are they trying to demoralize them to the point that, uh, that people will, will leave our military? What are they trying to do? We've already seen in Afghanistan and in the fiasco there in Afghanistan, we've already seen what this woke military has resulted in. Now, what we ought to be doing and all our commanders at every level should be focused on war fighting, being ready to fight and win the nation's wars. But instead, I thought after Afghanistan that the, 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 the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs and all those commanders in the field would understand that they need to switch their their focus back to readiness, being ready to fight and win the nation's wars. But this is evidence that this administration is determined to do something negative to our military. And for what reason, uh, I cannot say. To your point about strange priorities, another announcement today from the Air Force that they are now allowing the use of preferred pronouns in the signature blocks of emails. What do you make of this? Where do you think that one's going to go? Have you already seen uh, professors in universities get fired for not using the right uh, pronoun? Uh, Do you think that's going to uh, be the case in the military as well? What does that have to do with winning wars? Nothing. Nothing at all, but it's a detractor. And it is a demoralizer. And what we need is an army whose morale is high, who is ready to go face-to-face, toe-to-toe with the enemy, and is ready to win this nation's wars. And we are not focused on that at all with all of this nonsense that you see going on here as reflected in this new directive that came out today. How long do you think it will be before the military allowing preferred pronouns in signature box becomes a requirement 
to list uh, preferred pronouns in their signature blocks? Oh, I don't know how long it'll be, but it will happen. It, it will happen. As, as, if, if Joe Biden lasts through four years, if he makes it through his four years, by the time he leaves office, it'll be mandatory, I'll bet you. And the impact of that is what, do you think? The impact of that is that the troops look at that, shake their head and say, I thought I came into the military. I thought I came in to, to be a warfighter or to be a warrior. And they look at this kind of nonsense and they say, our leadership can't be trusted. Our leadership is not focused on what is important to us as warriors. And uh, I think it's going to be one more incremental step towards totally demoralizing our military. And as with vaccine mandates, it's another way to identify those service members who may not be woke enough and then usher them out. That would certainly be a simple one. We hope that is not the case. But General Boykin, we appreciate your time with us today. Good to be with you, Joseph. Coming up after the break, the Biden administration's vaccine mandate on businesses have been reinstated by the Sixth Circuit. The Supreme Court. What is religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs. Why should we care about this freedom? At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe that it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a tragic reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to increase globally. In scripture, God calls Christians to pray and care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To access Family Research Council's latest resources and to learn more about religious freedom and what you can do to help the persecuted, go to frc.org slash religious liberty. Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent episodes of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, tweets, and other social media posts, and our latest blogs, updates, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. The website is TonyPerkins.com, where you can find this and every episode of Washington Watch. Also, between now and December 31st, you can have your contribution made through TonyPerkins.com doubled for December 31st. Thank you for your support. On Friday, a three-judge panel of the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals decided two to one to reinstate the Biden administration's shots or test requirement for businesses with 100 or more employees. 
the mandate, which is one of three that were put on ice over the past few weeks, now heads to the United States Supreme Court, where the justices are being asked to grant an immediate appeal. Joining me now is Ryan Bangert, senior, senior counsel and vice president for legal strategy at Alliance Defending Freedom, which is challenging the Biden administration's mandate on behalf of several religious employers, including the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Ryan, welcome back to the program. Joe, great to be here. Thanks for having us on. It's good to see you. Now, first, tell us who you're representing and what your objections are to OSHA's emergency temporary standards. Certainly. So we represent, as you noted, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, as well as other religious institutions all across the country, some Christian schools down in Florida, employers groups. We also represent the Daily Wire in a separate lawsuit. So it's really a combination of for-profit, non-profit, and religious institutions, all of which are united in saying that the employer's man, the employee mandate is unconstitutional and an overreach of the federal government's authority to control American citizens and their health care decisions. Now, previously, the Fifth Circuit had issued a stay on the employer mandates. Now, just last week, the Sixth Circuit said that the mandates can go into effect. Why the difference of opinion? Well, not to put it too crassly, but different judges, different panels, uh, and they saw things differently. Um, I think the Fifth Circuit was absolutely correct, and I think it's worth noting that the Sixth Circuit, which is a federal appeals court based in Cincinnati, a number of judges on the Sixth Circuit, led by Chief Judge Sutton, uh, who is one of the most respected jurists in the country, wrote a vigorous opinion explaining exactly why this, this mandate is both unconstitutional and an overreach of federal authority. So even, in this, even amongst the judges on the, fifth, on the Sixth Circuit, you have a wide uh, variation of opinion uh, many of whom, and some of the most respected judges there, believe that this, this mandate is unconstitutional. Now, this particular mandate applies to employers with 100 or more employees. How many employers is that across the country? Uh, well, the federal government estimates upwards of 80 million employees all across the country could be affected by this mandate, uh, which is an astonishing number. And I think that alone tells you why the federal courts have been so reticent to bless this as a valid exercise of federal authority. Anytime you have an agency like OSHA uh, that is uh, implementing federal policy of this sweep and magnitude, it, you have to ask the question, is this really what Congress intended? And the courts, with the exception of two judges on the Sixth Circuit panel, have uniformly said, no, this is a vast overreach of federal authority. With these mandates in place, what is the penalty for employers who are found not to be in compliance? The penalty can be fairly severe, up, up to nearly $14,000 per violation. And for willful violation, the number can go much higher than that. So there are real financial consequences associated with not following this mandate. Now, an emergency stay has been filed with the Supreme Court asking them to essentially agree with the Fifth Circuit and uh, and stop the federal government from enforcing these against private employers. What do you expect from the Supreme Court? Well, the good news is we already have our first indication. Justice Brett Kavanaugh has ordered that the federal government uh, respond to the petitions for review no later than December 30th. So the Supreme Court has already asked for a very fast response, and we're hopeful that the Supreme Court will address this 
right after the turn of the new year, because OSHA has already signaled to the regulated community that it's going to begin enforcement, uh, full enforcement of this mandate by the second week of February. So uh, the, the clock is running. You are not the first ones to ask the Supreme Court to issue a stay with respect to the federal to the White House's mandates on this issue. And so far, they have declined to do so. Why do you think this case might be different? Well, I think there are several reasons why this case might be different. Uh, first of which is the fact that OSHA has so clearly overshot its statutory authority. Uh, OSHA, don't forget, this is an emergency temporary standard, an ETS. So this is the absolute maximum uh, authority that OSHA can, can exercise over American employers and employees. Uh, it is a uh, rule that was implemented without any notice or comment. Uh, being no no opportunity for notice or comment getting into the public. Uh, it is only, OSHA is only allowed to use this authority in situations that are grave threats and grave dangers to public health. And we believe, and I believe the Fifth Circuit has found correctly, that OSHA came nowhere close to satisfying that high standard. So for those and a very, a number of other reasons, uh, I think it's, it, this particular mandate is very, very vulnerable to, to uh, being overturned by the Supreme Court. Ryan, we've got about uh, 30 seconds, but even if there's a stay, this issue will be litigated. Why are you optimistic that ultimately the employers will prevail in this case? Well, I'm optimistic for the reasons we just discussed. I think the law is clear. I think OSHA very clearly overshot its authority here. Uh, I think that the statutory analysis that was conducted by the Fifth Circuit was spot on, as well as the analysis conducted by Chief Judge Sutton. Uh, those judges are very respected. And I believe the Supreme Court is going to see it the same way. Ryan Banger, Alliance Defending Freedom, thanks so much for your vigilance on behalf of freedom and your time today. Thank you. Coming up, we are airplanes ever going to be places where you don't have to wear masks? Dr. Fauci seems to suggest no. We'll talk about that as well as how concerned you should be about Omicron when we come back. Stay with us here on Washington. Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent episodes of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, tweets and other social media posts, and our latest blogs, updates, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. What is religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs. Why should we care about this freedom? At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe that it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a tragic reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to increase globally. 
In scripture, God calls Christians to pray and care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To access Family Research Council's latest resources and to learn more about religious freedom and what you can do to help the persecuted, go to frc.org slash religious liberty. Attention university students. Are you looking for an internship that will help you grow as a Christian leader and allow you to positively influence the culture? Then Family Research Council's internship program is for you. FRC's life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program will prepare and equip you for the next step in your professional journey. You'll enjoy a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training. All of these offerings were created to aid you in your personal and professional development. As an intern, you will have the opportunity to work side-by-side with our experts in policy, communications, event planning, and more. The real-world experience you gain will prepare you to pursue a career of influence and make a difference wherever God calls you. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply. It's beginning to look a lot like Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backer in the Now, last week, the CEOs of American Airlines and Southwest Airlines, two of the nation's largest airlines, told the Senate Committee on Commerce, Science and Transportation that there is a very strong case that wearing masks on planes don't do much to limit exposure to COVID. Those comments, of course, were not received well by some, including Dr. Fauci, President Biden's chief medical advisor, who was asked yesterday on ABC's This Week about when masks might no longer be required on airplanes. They were suggesting that there really isn't much of a need for a mask on an airplane. Are we going to get to the point where we won't have to wear masks on airplanes? I don't think so. I think when you're dealing with a closed space, even though the filtration is good, that you want to go that extra step. While masks might be an extra step, are they a necessary step or one that needs to be mandated? Are they even a significant step? Joining me now to talk about this and more is Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, professor of medicine at Stanford University and one of the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, a statement advocating an alternative approach to the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Bhattacharya, welcome back to the program. Uh, Great pleasure to be here. Well, I've got a lot I want to talk to you about, but we're going to start with the comments there from Dr. Fauci, the prospect that uh, masks are an extra step that may always be helpful. I mean, if you look at the evidence about ventilation, especially in places that are excellently ventilated like airplanes, um, that is a far more important intervention than the the mask that you wear. The the typical mask people wear have no evidence at all that they stop the spread of the disease or protect the, the person wearing it from disease, especially like the cloth masks. Um, and so I think uh, this idea that there, it's necessary as an extra step, I don't, I, I mean, I think it doesn't make sense. It doesn't co- correspond with the scientific evidence actually saying, uh, especially the randomized literature about masks. Uh, in this case, the CEOs are right, and Dr. Fauci, you're wrong, is wrong. 
Do you think it's too much to say that some and perhaps Dr. Fauci are generally unconcerned with the trade-offs in this discussion, unconcerned with the economic, emotional, psychological impact of these decisions, and singularly focused on the health impact? That's entirely true. He is, uh, he in particular, and, and much of the public health class that's been running the lockdown focus strategy that we've been using, seem utterly blind to the collateral harms of the policies that they put forward. Uh, you, you mentioned economic harms. L let's leave those aside. Let's just talk about the public health harms. You know, women are showing up with late-stage breast cancer this year because we, we, cl we closed the elective treatments last year. They should have been caught with mammograms last year in an earlier stage. They're going to die thanks to the, the short-sighted policies. Tens of millions of people around the world have been thrown into poverty and dire food insecurity because of the economic harms of lockdowns, especially in, in poor countries. Um, and I think uh, this is one of these things that has been bugging me the entire epidemic. Public health is more than just about a single virus. It's about the, the entirety of health of the, of the, of the, of the population. And uh, uh, much public health has lost sight of that. During the hearings last week, Senator Ed Markey, uh, Massachusetts, he also made a moral argument, but he made a different moral argument. He criticized the remarks of the airline CEOs. I want to play a part of his response to you and then get your responses. Right now, there are tens of thousands of people flying who are unvaccinated today on planes in the United States. And it's unfair to people who are vaccinated to have them sitting next to uh, them with their masks off. It would be wrong. It would be immoral to ever take that position. What do you think about the idea that it would be wrong and immoral to allow massless people on uh, to be near um, masked people on airplanes or the unvaccinated? Well, I mean, I think he, he, uh, that kind of politics is, a, is itself, I believe, immoral. It's a politics of division and it is not rooted in the scientific facts. The vaccine is a fantastic tool to protect you against severe disease if you should get COVID. It works incredibly well for that. I mean, I personally was vaccinated in April of this this year and then got COVID in August. And it was a, you know, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't the most pleasant experience, but I didn't, wasn't hospitalized. And of course, I didn't die. Um, uh, on the other hand, the vaccine does not stop disease spread. That is abundantly clear. We're seeing vac highly vaccinated states see major outbreaks. We see highly vaccinated countries see major outbreaks. The vaccine um, then, therefore, is not some categorical thing that makes you clean, which is the premise of the remark by Representative Markey. Uh, in, in fact, uh, the idea of clean and unclean has no place in public health and in no place in public health policy. Um, and I think it, it's, if you're going to talk about what an immoral policy, discrimination against the unvaccinated, I think, falls into that category. They're not they're not categorically higher risk to anyone than the vaccinated are. You note there that the vaccine is incredibly effective at reducing the impact of an infection, the severity of it, but also that it does not stop the spread. Is that something that we've learned over over the last two years? Because if memory serves, there was this hope that the vaccine was actually going to stop the spread. Yeah, this is one of these things that, that we have learned. I mean, this is in January of this year, in reviewing the data that from Pfizer in their randomized trial, I thought that the vaccine would stop disease spread and stop infection or, or sort of greatly reduce the risk of it. Um, what's come out over time uh, from a whole series of re really fantastic studies done in, in places like Qatar, Sweden, Denmark, uh, even even in Northern California, uh, these cohort studies we tracked over time, turns out that vaccination 
by itself does not stop disease spread. In fact, vaccine efficacy against getting infected peaks around two months after vaccination um, at about 70% efficacy against infection and then drops sharply so that by six or seven months, it's down to maybe 20% efficacy and maybe lower at eight months. Um, so the, the vaccine doesn't stop getting you, stopping you from getting infected. But what it does do, as you said, is that it protects you against severe disease. It'll make it so that when you get sick, uh, when you get infected, you have a less severe outcome, uh, a, le- you know, sort of le- a less severe disease. Um, and, and that's actually, <laughs> I mean, that's, that is the right basis to tell people to take the vaccine. It will protect you. Uh, unlike masks, against severe disease. So if it doesn't, if a vaccine does not stop the spread, how should that change our current policies? Well, this this push to ostracize the unvaccinated, to force them by coercion, by taking away their their uh, their ability to work, their ability to go to uh, to restaurants, to to, to public libraries. Uh, I mean, that needs to end immediately. It is not justified by the science, and I, and I believe it's just immoral. Um, I think uh, the 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 idea that the vaccine is that that that, that somehow if we vaccinate a hundred percent of the population, then the disease will stop is a false notion. We have no technology of stopping disease spread. This disease will continue to spread, uh, will continue to circulate in human populations forever. Actually, not just in human populations. This, uh, this infects uh, basically a very wide variety of mammals. There was a serial survey in the U.S. that 80% of white-tailed deer have antibodies to COVID. Um, so I think this is one of these things where we, we think we have a, a control over something we actually do not have control. It's an illusion of control over the spread of the disease. Uh, I think uh, the vaccine mandates... Are a uh, are a sort of a symptom of this um, that that, that we, we we've fallen into this illusion of control over this disease because we're so scared of it. Uh, but in fact, the right policy is encourage people to get vaccinated because it, it will stop them from getting a severe disease if they were to, were to get infected. It should not be to try to stop the disease from spreading altogether because we just don't have the t- technology to do that. Do you think, with respect to the virus, which has now gone through at least two variants that we've been very publicly aware of, Delta, now Omicron, are things ever going to be substantially different than they are now? Is there going to be a, po- a point at which there are no more cases where we've generally developed the immunity? Uh, and, and this is just not something that anybody is talking about anymore. No, uh, this disease will spread around forever. Um, the herd immunity means a sufficiently large fraction of the population is immune, not that the disease, that, that so, such that the disease doesn't spread exponentially. Well, I mean, that could happen. Uh, that, I mean, that will happen eventually. Uh, but that doesn't mean the disease is gone. It just means it comes back every season. It'll, we'll, we'll, we'll have from now until forever a COVID season where the disease will spread. Um, but it's not anything to fear because uh, at that point, but well, in, you know, in the, uh, in the future, very, like hopefully very soon, uh, a sufficiently large fraction of the population uh, is, has already experienced the disease and recovered. So they're, protected against severe disease, or they're vaccinated uh, and protected against severe disease. So the COVID becomes something we can manage, a risk that we can manage, rather than something we should fear and uh, completely change our lives around. How far away are we from that point? Because at the beginning of this entire uh, episode, I think I heard numbers of somewhere between 
70 and 80 percent. Once 70 and 80 percent of the population has antibodies, that's the point at which we've developed some form of herd immunity. That's basically the best we can hope for. It'll be under control, but always with us. Where are we at now uh, compared to the best case scenario? I mean, I don't, I don't know the, the, the threshold such that it, the disease uh, is above the herd immunity threshold. I don't think anyone knows that number. It's a seasonal disease, so the herd immunity threshold is not a fixed target. It, uh, the herd immunity threshold will be higher in the winter uh, during COVID season or the fall during COVID season and lower in the summer, uh, and it'll depend on the, on the region you're in, right? So uh, <laughs> southern regions seem to be affected earlier in the year. Um, so uh, it's not that you have a fixed number and you're done with the disease. Uh, the question is, what fraction of the population is still immune naive? Uh, what fraction of the population it neither has the, the uh, immunity induced by the vaccine or by COVID recovery? And that fraction of the population, I believe, is shrinking very rapidly. Um, I mean, it, it, I don't, I, I, it's unfortunate that the CDC doesn't track these numbers or attempt to, like, track these numbers systematically like some, some other countries do. But in, in other places, it's upwards of 80 percent of the population already uh, have already had either the, the, the vaccine or, or a natural immunity from COVID recovery. Um, I mean, the U.S. could be in that range. It, uh, we don't have a good number for, for the U.S., but it wouldn't surprise me to know that we were somewhere in that range. Um, again, that doesn't mean the disease doesn't spread. That doesn't mean you can't get the disease. And it also even doesn't mean that you won't die from the disease. That's possible, like especially if you're o- older and immunocompromised. Mean, uh, respiratory viruses, unfortunately, kill, including things like the flu and even common colds, kill uh, older people all the time, especially older immunocompromised people all the time. It's, it's just, uh, but it's not something that we uh, sort of uh, restructure our entire society around trying to avoid simply because we do not have the technology to avoid it. We don't know how to stop the, these diseases from spreading. Let's talk about Omicron for a moment because there's there's mixed messages. Some are saying this is the best thing that's ever happened because it's going to give everybody immunity and it's very minor. Some are saying it's about to overwhelm the hospital system. What do you think we should believe about Omicron? Well, if you look at the data out of South Africa and out of Denmark, it's actually pretty encouraging. Uh, it looks to like that the uh, that people who are infected with Omicron, again, adjusting for age of the population, um, is it, they get a milder outcome, less likely to be hospitalized, less likely to need oxygen, less likely to die from the infection than if they uh, than the than the previous variant, uh, the Delta variant. So, I mean, in that sense. It's, it's good news that we have a milder variant floating around. It does also seem to be more transmissible. So it's, it's you know, it, the, the things that you thought were protecting you uh, are, are less likely all else equal to, be, to protecting, protect you from catching the thing in the first place. As I've been saying all along, we don't have a technology to stop it. And Omicron just makes it more, uh, more the case that we don't have a technology to stop it. Uh, is this good news or bad news? Uh, I think it really depends on how large a fraction of the population is, is protected by some form of immunity, so either either natural immunity from from COVID recovery, uh, being young by itself it provides some protection. You know, children are already have very mild diseases, even with the earlier variants, um, uh, for instance, and uh, you know, for the, for the vast majority of them, and then uh, or 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 the vaccine. I mean, all all of those things provide some degree of protection. In that sense, since Omicron is less less severe, that's to me good news. You mentioned that youth itself is a kind of protection from the coronavirus. Do you recommend the vaccine for young people? I mean, I think that should be a decision you make with, with between the pediatrician and the parent, 
right? Uh, and and the, 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 it would depend on the particulars of the kid. I mean, I can think of cases where a, a, a child has severe chronic diseases or, or is immunocompromised in some way where it makes some sense to vac- vaccinate. Uh, and I can also think of cases in the, you know, where a child doesn't really need it because they're, they have uh, their health, their healthy child, and they, they, if they were to get infected, they would have a mild disease. Um, so, uh, and you know, there are side effects from this vaccine, especially boys seem to have higher risk of myocarditis if you were to get one of the mRNA vaccines. Um, and so, you know, I think it, this ought to be a, a private medical decision that parents make with the pediatricians, not something that's uh, the center central focus of public policy. Now, very quickly, uh, a more personal part of the story for you. Over the weekend, the American Institute for Economic Research released an email exchange between Dr. Fauci and NIH Director Francis Collins that said they attempted to coordinate a, quote, devastating takedown of the Great Barrington Declaration of which you were a part. What was your reaction when you saw that? I was disappointed. I mean, I think uh, I've long admired Dr. F- uh, Dr. Collins. Um, and, uh, and, and to see that the head of the National Institute of Health would engage in essentially a propaganda smear campaign against me and my colleagues, that was, is, is, I mean, incredibly disappointing to see. Uh, I mean, uh, to me, it t- so it says a few things. One, uh, he lies about the, 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 the proposal. We, we, we argued for focused protection of vulnerable people in the Great Barrington Declaration. He characterized it as a proposal to let the virus rip in society. That is false. We did not propose to let the virus rip inside. In fact, we proposed specific measures to protect vulnerable people, and particularly older people who are, uh, have this risk of severe disease if they were to get sick. Um, that was in October of last year. And yet he mischaracterized and he organized a media campaign to continue to mischaracterize it. I mean, I, and I felt the, the brunt of that over the past year. Um, that, the, the, Dr. Bhattacharya? Unfortunately, I can't let you finish your answer because we are at a hard break and we are out of time. I knew I was going to run out of time with you, and we have, but we greatly appreciate you being with us, as well as your courage on this issue. Thank you so much. Thank you. Nice to talk. And friends, that's our show for the day. We will see you tomorrow here on Washington Watch. And remember, fear God and nothing else. We'll see you next time. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234. 